It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 75, the Mean Joe Green episode here of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, my co-conspirator, my co-contributor, my co-host, and my tag team championship partner in podcasting himself, the J. Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? It's impossible for me to be more pumped up than ever hate you because I'm pumped up every week on the What's Real podcast, as you know, but a huge celebration this week with our even numbers. I mean, I know the actual number 75 is an odd number, but you know what I mean? It's the 75th, you know, that's 75 or 80 or 85. And we're at 75 episodes, which is nuts. And as always, tons to cover. We're going to go to all kind of places, including the last driving again. And I am as vascular, as striated as I need to be for What's Real AEO. That's right, the Jay. We are going to go to the last drive-in once again this week, and we're going to be taking a look at a double feature of Evil Speak from 1981, the Clint Howard vehicle, if you will, and a subtitled uh, horror comedy, basically, uh, The Day of the Beast from 1995. We are going to go to the dark side of the ring this time. We're going to be talking Dynamite Kid, and we have an old brand new movie from George A. Romero uh, from 1973, originally just released uh, on Shudder for the first time ever, just on June 8th, I believe it was, and that is The Amusement Park. Uh, We're going to have Goofs or Goofs and much, much more, of course. Uh, First up, though, we have to address something. Uh, The What's Real podcast is going on vacation. uh, from. I'm going to be heading off into parts unknown. Uh, and uh, from what the J was telling me, you're, I don't know where you're going, but you're going to meet Flo Rida, right? Is that what you're doing? I, I'm actually going to take on Florida Man. Oh, you're going. Oh, I totally misunderstood you. I, thought, I was like, why is he so excited about meeting, meeting Flo Rida? But I love Flo Rida. But you're going to, well, maybe you'll meet him when you go there. I don't know what you got going on. Exactly. But, um, but that means. We are going to be off for two weeks from the regular podcast. Now, we ain't leaving you guys empty-handed, okay? We have the very first ever What's Real podcast, Summer Vacation Spectacular. Two awesome episodes for you guys. First up, we are going to be talking some SummerSlam as me and the Jay get into our top 10 favorite SummerSlam matches of all time. And the Jay... Tell them what part two is all about. Oh, that was a blast, man. We we talked going into it about some concepts for a special. And we said, you know, those list shows that certain shows and podcasts and things like that do where they do like top 10 lists. Uh, that's not something that you and I are too big on personally, but they're pretty popular. So we, we put our own spin on it and we did a Mount Rushmore special. And what that means is, hey, Ed and I threw categories at each other to put our Mount Rushmore within those categories, basically picking our top four favorite things of those that we would have put on the proverbial Mount Rushmore. And it was a blast. 
Yeah, and I think it got us into a lot of different territories than uh, we normally do exactly. on the show. So I, I think that people are going to enjoy that, especially if you like the stuff that we normally talk about. So here is the basic rundown of what's going to happen. Uh, the show you guys are listening to today is available as of June 18th. So next week, June 25th, Friday, we are going to have a new show for you. It's going to be our top 10 favorite SummerSlam matches of all time. That is part one of the summer vacation special. And part two is going to be on Friday, July 2nd. That's going to be the Mount Rushmore special. So that's kind of funny as we go into Independence Day weekend. But uh, don't worry, uh, because we will be easy for me to say. We will be back, we'll be back on our regular schedule on Friday, July 9th with episode 76. So uh, it won't be the regular scheduled programming the next few weeks here, um, but it's still going to be some content and some stuff uh, we think you guys are going to like. And uh, like the Jay said, he's going to be going in his search for Florida man, and I'm going to be heading off into parts unknown. Uh, hopefully we both make it back in one piece for episode 76, but it wouldn't be the first time, especially with, uh, you know, Thursday night prime, we've taken bullet wounds and stabbings and, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to keep us down when you say the J yeah, we're, we're scarred up individuals, but yeah, it's basically like we're going somewhere, but we ain't going anywhere. Peeps. Perfect way of putting that the J. So, uh, with all the stuff we got jam packed into the show this week, let's just get into it. Uh, but first up, if you guys are listening on iTunes, uh, please throw us a five-star review. Really appreciate that. Gets more eyes and ears on the program. And of course, you could listen to us each and every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week at churchillpictures.com. So, and if you have anything you'd like to add to the show, feel free to drop us an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. And uh, so this is a pretty big story, especially for the stuff that me and you talk about here on the show, the Jay, in the world of sneakers. Um, Nike has gone out and gotten the Air Jordan 1 trademarked. Uh, this is from um, Complex.com. The Air Jordan 1 is now a federally protected trademark. Uh, after going through months-long lawsuits against designer Warren Lotus over his dunk lookalikes last year, Nike is taking steps to protect more of its iconic sneakers. Last week, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office officially granted Nike's trademark for the Air Jordan 1. As spotted by lawyer Zach Kurtz, who runs sneaker law firm, Nike's trade dress application for the Air Jordan 1 was registered uh, on June 1st, 2021, originally filed by Nike on July 31st, 2020. The approval ran into some delays uh, due to early opposition from skate brand Vans, which Nike has recently battled with over the former's uh, signature checkerboard pattern. The new trade dress approval also pertains to the Air Jordan 1 Low and Low SE models, which they are coming out with this year, the Low models for the first time with the uh, the Nike Air tag on the tongue, like the highs have. So they're kind of changing the way they do that, and they're raising the prices on those a little bit too as well. Of course. But, um, there's been a whole lot of bootlegging of Air Jordan 1s, and I'm not talking about, like, you know, Nike sneakers. We saw um, what Steve Madden made uh, ripoffs of them. Uh, there's been a lot of companies that even, like, you know, like, we've seen that before, like, Bapestas or ripoffs of Air Jordan or of uh, Air Force 1s. 
Like you see a lot of this parody stuff going on in the shoe business with a lot of this stuff. And Nike's trying to protect it uh, itself by getting, you know, the patent for this. Um, but that's not where this all ends. This is where everything's kind of like trying to ramp up a little bit because I saw an article on hypebeast.com. Uh, Nike accused of fraud for trademarking of Air Jordan 1. So this is interesting here because, you know, like we said, Nike's trying to protect their trademark um, and they filed that last week. Well, serving as a lifeline for bootlegs, the petition was filed by Robert Lopez, founder of New York-based RGL Consulting Group, a firm that assists independent brands and small business owners in successfully enforcing their brand ownership rights against corporate giants. The petition accuses Nike of fraud, noting the sportswear giant submitted false statements to receive its improperly issued, quote unquote, federal trademark protection for the Air Jordan 1. If the United States Patent and Trademark Office retracts the federal trademark protection, we can see the lawful continuation of bootlegs that look similar to the Air Jordan 1 and other Air Jordan 1 variants, kind of like what we said. Um, but, you know, clearly people aren't willing to just let this go lightly. Um, and it kind of just shows you something that I think me and you talk about all the time on here, the Jay, when we talk about sneakers in general, man, that Air Jordan 1, you know, Air Jordans have a certain amount of power, but that Air Jordan 1 silhouette and everything, man, is like, you know, that's the biggie. That's the one that that's everybody top dog. wants a piece of. Yeah. It, and I mean, yeah. it's understandable because it's, it's way more of a universal shoe than most of the other Jordans. Let's just be honest. Um, but like they're trying to protect that because that shoe has become kind of like Nike's calling card, almost like the Chuck Taylor is to Converse. Yeah, and it's it kind of splits me because I understand business enough to to know that what Nike's doing is the right thing for for their company and their future, of course. But there are two sides to every every story, and as the uh, consulting group that you referenced in the Hype Beast article, Hey Ed says that they're a firm that assists independent brands and small business owners in successfully enforcing their brand ownership rights against corporate giants, which Nike is. And we also get into the the kind of territory of like, how much money do you really need? I mean, Nike is a multi-billion dollar company. So, uh, you know, I think it's like anything. It's like, it depends on the size of the fraud, you know? And, and you mentioned like Steve Madden, for example, is a good example because that's coming from another big company. Yeah. You know, I could see them putting a stop to something like that. But then when it comes to like, you know, maybe certain people, because I, I think the other argument would be for people in like a low income situation whose little kid, you want to get some semblance of a pair of Jordans and you can only afford bootleg ones, you know, in, in that kind of case. I mean, it, it kind of gets muddy waters. But but yeah, this was interesting where this whole thing went with Nike you know, having to fight for the the patent, getting it. And then like now it's already being, um, you know, uh, counter petitioned. So, dude, it, it's, it's all wild. It, well, see, here's the thing, too, man. We've talked about this before. Uh, Nike has been kind of shifting its business model. Like they're kind of getting out of the the retailer stuff, you know, where like they send a bunch of shoes to Dick's Sporting Goods and other sporting goods stores and they're they're moving all their chips over into the world of hype. And this is to me is just another example of that because they're trying to protect one of their most hyped entities, which is the Jordan one. I mean, nowadays exactly. when it comes to sneakers, the J outside of like dunks, there's nothing else that gets more hype than Jordan ones. 
right. other than like an occasional thing here and there, maybe, but not as consistent as Jordan one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I, I see both sides to the story and that's why it's, it's interesting to keep an eye on because with this counter petition, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the U S patent and trademark office uh, maybe decides to do further down the road here. But as of now, the Air Force Ones are officially patented through the, the government through Nike. Which is also weird because I feel like that shoe has been ripped off by tons of shoe companies. Like I somewhat recently saw, uh, I thought it was an Air Force One and then I double, I did like a double back on it. It was an Adidas. And I'm like, so Adidas is making these now too? Like it, it's kind of crazy, but you know, that's the nature of the beast. That's how everything goes in the world, not just the shoe industry. It's always monkey see, monkey do when it comes to things. Yeah. Um, and whenever things sell, people try and pick up on that. And like, you know, once in a blue moon, uh, that imposter product becomes more popular than the original. Not forever, And that's, that's what they're right. And that's what they're trying to avoid, because if they do get lax and say, like I was kind of saying in the counter argument, like, oh, we're we're too big to fail. We're a multi-billion dollar company. Who cares about what Adidas is trying to bite us off of and stuff like that? But then as soon as you leave your guard down, you know, that's where holes can be poked and certain things can happen. Exactly. So we'll keep our eyes out for this because as you guys know, we kind of like to stay on top of Nike and what they're doing because they're always the biggest movers and shakers in the shoe industry, regardless of what they're doing is a good thing, bad thing or a terrible thing. Um, it still pays to watch Nike and what they're doing. So, and we'll keep doing that here on the show. This is something that I found really interesting, the Jay. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. The American Genre Film Archive and Troma Entertainment announced a theatrical distribution partnership. Um, this is cool, um, especially too, there's been a lot of news stories and things breaking about uh, the remake of The Toxic Avenger. So to me, this is kind of like trauma reloading their stock uh, because there might be some, you know, related interest in their products and stuff. Yeah, people might be finding. Yeah, the next generation might be finding out about trauma a little more. Exactly. So uh, basically, the American Genre Film Archive, the largest largest nonprofit genre film archive and distributor in the world. Um, is announcing a theatrical partnership with Troma Entertainment, uh, who's been around for 47 years, by the way. Um, and of course, it's the home of the Toxic Avenger, world famous for movies of the future. Many of Troma's classics were written and directed by Troma toppers Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hers, such as Squeeze Play, The First Turn On, Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD, and of course, Toxic Avenger. Um, it's also a place like where they, uh, discover a lot of people too like james gunn director of guardians of the galaxy and suicide squads from there uh trey and matt uh trey parker and matt stone from south park came from there eli roth came out of there uh jenna fisher from the office started with trauma samuel L. jackson uh was in toxic avenger um also people like robert de niro dustin hoffman kevin costner fergie paul walker and vincent d'onofrio all got their start in trauma films um but the AGFA will distribute 70 films from Troma's movie library to theaters. Um, so you're going to see a lot of stuff because they've done partnerships recently uh, with Aero Films, Multicom, Severn Film, Shop Factory, and Vinegar Syndrome to get like some of their stuff in theaters. And they have been getting screenings. So this is pretty cool, man. They have a really 
good list of stuff here. Um, Blood Sucking Freaks is one of my favorites. That's going to be on here. We talked about that on the show before. Uh, all mm-hmm. the Toxie movies, the Class of Newcomb High movies, stuff like Combat Shock, Death by Den- Temptation, Father's Day, Mother's Day, uh, Last Horror Film, uh, you know, pretty much all the classics and, and the really good things that you want to see from them. And that's good news for me, too, because I'm hoping to get the opportunity to see some of the stuff, especially if it's something uh, that I've never had the opportunity to see up to this point. Cannibal, the musical that was uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's yep. film with trauma. I mean, yeah, this is this was really cool to see. This gives like, you know, some semblance as an independent filmmaker uh, for future theatrical screenings of your work, you know, because yeah. we've been talking leading up to this and through the pandemic with you know, what happened with the theater industry and the the business within the movie theater industry. And now with things opening up, you know, hopefully theaters will make a bit of a comeback and it's pretty much, you know, as you always say, Hey, uh, the tangents about the superhero movies. Uh, but it just seems like anymore it's, you know, big kid movies, you know, kid movie franchises, superhero movies, you know, maybe a big budget horror movie, like a Blumhouse here and there, and then just sequels in franchises, you know, Mission Impossibles that are all at the multiplex nowadays. But uh, this article maybe is bringing up that that could be changing a little bit here in the near future, which is great to see. Dude, that's something that I've thought about during the pandemic and kind of seeing how everything's gone since they've reopened theaters and people have gotten back out again. Um, I don't know if there's enough that's going to happen to really bring audiences back to the theater, but I think there is something out there that will bring people back out. And I'm, and I'm thinking more along the lines of like drive-ins repertory theaters that show like classics and older movies and independent films and stuff or art house stuff. Now Um, I think that's the, the stuff that's going to kind of thrive here uh, while the entire multiplex industry continues to to just take hits um, because I don't see a lot of movies even on the horizon really that are going to get people coming out in droves. I just don't know if they really like they feel like they're that they're in an influx period right now where they don't really even know how to satiate audiences and get people to the theater. Another aspect of it from the pandemic, because their business was hurting so much and, you know, desperate times called for desperate measures, of course, and they were doing the thing of you being able to personally rent out a theater for yeah. a really reasonable price. Yep. And I bring that up because this past weekend, happy birthday to my niece, Alexa, it was Alexa's birthday. And my sister rented out a theater for her birthday for, um, you know, whatever the the newest big kids movie is. I think it was Peter Rabbit 2. Yeah. And the kids have been talking about it up until today. You know, we record on Tuesday. That was over the weekend. And like Jace was even saying like, oh, daddy, it was so fun. You know, me and Brayden, my other nephew, we ran up to the front row and because, you know, they had the theater. So the parents yep. didn't care if the kids were kind of roaming because they're kids. So um, they had a really cool theater experience. And that like really stood out to me through this past, you know, year plus with with how the theaters have been it was just good to hear an eight and 10 year old talking like that about their movie experience too. So, you know, maybe if it continues like that, this is going to be another portion where this, this rental process is still available and bringing people back at least. Yeah. I mean, dude, there's a, a theater near us uh, that, that we used to go to all the time when we were young, the J, but uh, the cinematropolis, um, oh, yeah. you can rent a theater out there for $25 and you should see the list of movies they have. Like, 
Yep. That is nothing. Like, dude, I spent more money than that uh, going to wrestling over the weekend. Which yeah, I, like if I if I, I did that for our too, by the way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If, if I did that for one of our groups of friends, hypothetically, for example, like I'm like, hey, Ed, like, you know, when I get back from vacation that first weekend, I'm renting out Cinematropolis and we're watching Return of the Jedi or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I would fucking pay for that. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like, well, if, if uh, 20 of us throw two bucks each, well, you know, dude, that's all we need to throw. It's like, dude, I'll rent out a theater for $25. And it's also it's like good. BYOB and shit, too. So it's like, OK, yeah. you rent the theater out the J. I'll bring the beers like, and you know, right, like, exactly. And then, hey, let's get another one of our friends. Like, go pick up some fucking sandwiches somewhere and like. That's yeah, what we're doing. Pizza. Yeah, like that's amazing. So, yeah, talking out loud on the show, it's like, yeah, we should eye up doing that. I would totally summer. totally be down for that. But uh, you know, speaking of this past weekend, the J, uh, if you guys listen to our podcast here, you might hear uh some of the ads that I do for the IWC, the International Wrestling Cartel, and uh they had a show this past weekend, uh Reloaded 7.0 that I got to go to. And uh, it was really cool, first and foremost, getting back to wrestling uh, with fans and uh, live wrestling again. So that was nice. Had a, a pretty good show, man. So basically, the gist of, of Reloaded is they this is the night where they reset the company. So there'll be like one sided matches and the opponent is decided by a reset button. So they're all like a bunch of mystery matches. And they had something called a 16-bit challenge, which was one part battle royal, one part gauntlet match with 16 different competitors. And the winner gets uh, the reset button and the ability to get a championship at any IWC title they want. And uh, it was kind of cool here, too, because there was a couple of um, <laughs> a couple of surprises in this. Um, now, they did some surprises as far as like IWC guys go. So like they had Chris LaRusso come back. And uh, at one point in the match, Jock Sampson returned and they're like major enemies. So like that, those were both surprises. Um, Bushwhacker Luke was a surprise. Uh, Henry Godwin was a surprise. (laughs) Um, So that was fun. And I also got to see a dude named Bulk Nasty uh, for the first time, who is a pretty big ass dude who would go on to win that. Um, So that was pretty cool. Um. Also, there was a few other dudes like so I was reading the card before I went and I was reading about this dude who has the super indie, the J, and his name's Bill Collier. And I was like, okay. that just sounds kind of plain. Well, then I was like looking up the stuff on the dude. He's six five, two hundred and sixty five pounds. And that immediately struck me as surprising because that's normally not the type of dude that has the super indie title. Like, you know that about, uh, and that's the, that's the video you sent me. Yeah. This of dude, his spot. yo, yeah. he does a ton of shit like that. Like this dude is super athletic. Uh, I, I really like this dude. And, uh, they also had Mance Warner, uh, was in the three way with him who was in, uh, impact wrestling. And, uh, he, he's also wrestled in AEW quite a bit recently. Uh, they sh- they they were there, um, you know, just and this was probably one of the biggest uh, moments of the whole show. Um, Katie Arquette is the IWC women's champion, and she fought uh, Jody Threat, who was chosen by the uh, reset button. And she is one of the heel ladies on the roster. So uh, in the match, uh, you know, the referees out and, uh, you know, 
Jody threats threatening to beat up Katie with the belt and kind of take it from her. And all of a sudden music hits. And who is it? None other than the current AEW women's world heavy or world champion. I shouldn't say heavyweight when it pertains to the ladies. Um, but Britt Baker uh, would come in and make the save uh, for the biggest pop of the night, which was very cool. She was in town, most likely from uh, Steel City Con. So we thought that there'd be a potential that she would show up. And, uh, you know, she's pretty loyal to IWC, which I think is pretty cool. And she made an appearance. So uh, it was a blast. Really good show overall. And, dude, the one thing I wanted to tell you, the J, that I was really impressed by IWC this time, dude. And you know how this is when you go to independent wrestling shows, right? There's a, a large portion of any indie roster uh, that looks like a weekend warrior. Like, I'm not saying the guys can't wrestle and I'm not saying they don't have experience or whatever, but they have other jobs. So they're not in the best shape. They wrestle in shirts and shit like that. Pretty common thing, right, the Jay? Oh, of course. So IWC really impressed me this time because they have a bunch of young up and coming dudes and they look like wrestlers, guys that are in pretty good shape. You know what I'm saying? Like Spencer Slade's a dude that uh, I saw for the first time who I told you the other day when I was talking to you, he kind of looks like to me like Randy Orton, but his gimmick's more like Kurt Angle. So he's like throwing. Yeah. He has like the, the old school headgear, yeah, the, Rick the amateur Steiner headgear. headgear and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, just like a decent young roster of dudes, you know, that I, I was uh, pretty impressed by. And uh, you know, it was really cool. And dude, uh, I don't know uh, if you're available for this or not, but they have another show coming up here. I want to say it's August 9th. That's the Ross Draver one. That is the Ross Draver one. So yeah, I would like to attend that. Uh, with Enzo and Big Kaz are going to be there. Carlito is going to be there. Sergeant Slaughter is going to be there. And one person that I think I really want to meet, the total package Lex Luger is going to be there. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and they already announced it. Uh, I believe it's IWC champion Andrew Palace is going to be defending against Carlito. So I'm like, that's pretty fucking cool. Pun intended. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, man, if you'd like to come along, I think uh, me and a couple other buddies, our buddy Steve and our buddy, my buddy Jeremy might be coming out for that one, too. Um, but yeah, that would be a total good time. And I even invited our buddy Gus on Facebook. So we'll see if he comes out for that one, too. Yeah, because as always, I would have loved to have attended this one with you guys. And as usual with the J on weekends and stuff, I had um, previous plans, so I was stuck with that. But I cannot wait to get to another live pro wrestling show. Um, so that that could definitely be the one because that's a loaded card out there. And, dude, it was, it was kind of cool, too, in this regard. Uh, you didn't have to wear masks, and I didn't because, again, I'm fully vaccinated. Um, and they still had little seat pods for everybody. So it was still everybody was still spread out and shit. And it was it, yeah, just nice, comfortable safeness. Yeah. Nice, comfortable atmosphere, man, which I, I'll be honest with you. They don't ever have to put all those seats back together again because I'm fine with not having a bunch of fat wrestling nerds sweating all over me and breathing everywhere because we have multiple stories about. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say wrestling like, smells, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, the infamous alien fart oh, smells like eggs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh that shit is alien but dude <laughs> speaking of wrestling the jay i'm gonna go into oh, this real man. quick a surprise question of the week for you what's the most important match 
in WWE or pro wrestling history. Yeah, now this this is another one of those ones that it, it's pretty tough and you can have varying ways to think about it, which is of course what old Jadum did over here. I'm like, you know, I'll just I'll just break down my line of thinking on it, hate you, and then throw me at what, what you were thinking. Sure. So the, what's the most important match in WWE or just wrestling history? Whatever one. So you of course want. I'm or you or you could pick one of each if you want, or maybe they're the well, same. I'm just going towards what made wrestling break the glass ceiling to become a pop cultural phenomena that you you didn't have to know about wrestling just if you were a hardcore or even casual wrestling fan that you like we always say like my parents knew who Hulk Hogan was and dude that sort of thing just to throw this out there too when I uh, the, the way I came up with this is somebody asked this I guess on Twitter and The Rock responded uh, would you like to know what The Rock's answer was? Give us The Rock's after ours. How about that? Okay. Yep. That works. Because I don't, because I want to kind of break this down. So I was thinking, Russell, you know, first I went to WrestleMania 1 with the way I was thinking, you know, yep. but that main event was kind of goofy. The celebrities, I'm like, was that the most important match in WWE? I don't, I'd have to say that in that line of thinking, that event might have been like the most important thing, but I don't think that match was just because it was the main event of that. Maybe I if think it was a title match a or something, but it wasn't. Right, for what, it, for what it was. So then I went to WrestleMania 3 and Hogan and Andre. Yep. And that was the headline of the biggest WrestleMania ever and kind of, you know, catapulted pretty much instant success for the WWF back then for multiple WrestleManias for years to come. So that is where I was going to go. But then I kind of finalized it where I figured, you know what? If that's going to be the way of my line of thinking and the way that I was going to go, I'm going to go to where it all started and say, in my opinion, that the most important match in WWE and wrestling history, because I say wrestling because WWE is the biggest wrestling company in the world, and, and this is due to that, would be Hogan versus Sheik, where Hogan goes over and Hulkamania was officially born. Okay. Um, that was my line of thinking. Well, someone agrees with you and it's not me. Okay. That's the rocks choice. See, that's why I wanted you to hold off. Cause I don't want to have mine ruined. So that's perfect. Um, I disagree. Um, okay. I go with Hogan Andre, um, because, you know, I'm not saying that, that Sheik and Hogan isn't important, but, Things like that have been done time and time again. That's now granted it was to launch Hogan. And I understand that, you know, um, but Hogan was certified, stamped and sealed with WrestleMania three uh, by Andre passing the torch by Hogan being the champion by the guys that completely drew that crowd and that that buy rate and that you know whatever you want to call it um you know that was the benchmark thing like i think that wrestlemania was the benchmark thing and then i think wrestlemania 2 came and it became the benchmark thing and then i think wrestlemania 3 came and it was the benchmark thing and i think wrestlemania 4 came and it was a big deal like that was the pinnacle. The only other match I might put in its place, and 
I, follow me on this one. Gotcha. It's the same match, but it's the Saturday night's main event one. And the reason why I'm saying uh, with the biggest 33. audience, 3.6 million people, the largest wrestling audience of all time. And that record will never be beat ever. Yeah, that's a good that's a good call. Hey, um, good line of thinking. So that's kind of why I still default back to the WrestleMania three match, because if that wasn't such a massive success, then neither would have been the rematch on Saturday night's main event. And you couldn't have that yeah. rematch without that thing. So you kind of, you know, WrestleMania three gets a little bit of credit for that rematch. So that's why I also pick it. Um, but you know, I totally understand. And you know, some people, I saw a few other people mentioning things too. Uh, people were mentioning the Montreal screw job because that would eventually, uh, cause Vince to be the heel that would work with Austin that would cause the attitude era boom era. So I understand that yeah. as well. Like, you know, that's a different era. That's why, you know, that's probably a younger person than me that probably thinks that way, which is understandable. That's their moment. Like what we're talking about was kind of ours or close to ours, right. you know, but yeah, I thought that would be an interesting question to bring up here on the show. Uh, as soon as I, I read the rocks thing on it, I was like, man, let me throw this in the show notes just to bring up to the J because I think we'll get something good out of it. And uh, oh, definitely, we are coming up on our first commercial break here of the show. But before we go, something that uh, and I wanted to get back to you on this, the J, because I, I don't remember. Um, but Riza says season two of Wu-Tang and American Saga is coming soon, um, which we've been waiting to hear um, since, you know, the, the first season ended. Apparently it will arrive by September. And of course, that airs on Hulu. And it is kind of a retelling of how uh, the Wu-Tang Clan all got started, even though it's not 100 percent true to life. But it's still pretty damn entertaining and a good show. Um, have you watched any of this at all, the Jay? I haven't. I've it's been on my radar, and it's the classic thing between free time and how much other shit that I watch. As we always say, we we got to the point now. It's it's tough from week to to week to just keep up with our you know priority uh, show topics and watching almost on an average of what would you say like probably uh, we average 10, 10 hours a week yeah, and that's of, of stuff that we have to watch fresh it, so we get buried uh, occasionally more so too than that yeah i mean you know sometimes it gets down to the wire Dude. i was just wrapping it up the uh, double feature of joe bob at like 3 today so uh, maybe on vacation uh since you know you probably have hulu on your phone uh, um, yes, that's what I was going to say. I do want to check it out. It's or something. Just throw an episode on. You might get into it, you know, yeah. just to see what it's like. Uh, I'll check it it's, out. Dude, I'll tell you Definitely. this it, from somebody that was a fan, obviously, of Wu-Tang back in the day, you know, like they came up when we were into this shit. Um, it really feels authentic to the era. Now, I don't know how authentic that's everything awesome. is to the personal story because I don't know these guys, but like their clothing the the music the st like they nail the time period perfectly so i love that about the show and they got really good actors to play them too I'm, i i was really impressed with the cast on uh, the first season so i'm that that's what i was going to mention without seeing it that it sounds like i could compare it to almost like a series version of uh straight out of compton the film yeah it might even be a little bit better than that too um because nice. you know they're not forced to rush through 
all this stuff because it's a well, movie. Well, exactly. That's a good know? point because it's a show. And, and yep. it, it kind of like makes you mad because then it's like, dude, why? I kind of wish this would happen to, you know, like NWA or Run DMC or like where they're going to get a show like this. You know, like I'd be down to watch yeah. all this stuff in show form, especially if it's made by the right people who know what they're doing. So, but yeah, man, looking forward to season two coming by September. So that's definitely good news as far as that goes. But uh, we have to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, me and the Jay are going to get into some talking about the legendary uh, late, great George A. Romero and his brand new old film from 1973 uh, that just premiered on Shudder, The Amusement Park. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. Hey everyone, it's the Jay from the What's Real podcast, here today to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damiano Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. Met God in Memphis As the devil's blue He said I heard your song boy Come to talk to you And we're back And it is time to get into a movie That I was super excited about Um, You know I've said it here on the show The Jay you know this about me Uh, George Romero is my favorite movie director of all time Um, dude's a huge influence on me uh you know especially growing up in pittsburgh you're kind of introduced to george romero in a different way uh so i've gotten the the opportunity to experience romero's career in a lot of different ways from growing up as a kid to meeting a lot of the people that worked in the movies to meeting george himself to working on you know, the day of the dead special feature, like a lot of Romero stuff uh, pulls at my heartstrings. So I was pretty hurt when he passed away just a few years ago. Um, But one positive out of it is we've seen some of his uh, just work that was hanging by the wayside brought out to the world, uh, which is really cool. Um, A couple of weeks ago here on the show, we mentioned a new uh, project or another old film that he made uh, about an African-American father and son that uh, his first, yeah, his very first film. And it's a short film that's going to be hitting the festival circuit here uh, any month now. And then we got the, uh, the novel that was completed by Daniel Krauss. 
so that was cool. Just another thing from Romero that we had didn't have before. We will review that one day. Yes. Yeah, we both. We will it. get to that. I promise. Um, and then here we have the amusement park, which was uh, a film that George Romero uh, completed for the Lutheran Society in 1973 that originally went unreleased. Um, it was apparently deemed inappropriate by them, or they just felt that it was not what they were trying to convey. So it was shelved. <laughs> yeah. And uh, apparently uh, this is something that uh, George Romero and his his widow, uh, Suzanne, uh, watched together a few months before he passed away. And she was surprised at how powerful it was. And she was like, and so this has never been released. And he's like, no, this is just like a little industry thing I just did years ago. And just didn't think people would have a lot of interest in it. But uh, George was wrong. So, uh, you know, as, as a massive Romero fan, like I was thrilled about this to begin with. And then I got even more excited when I found out that Shudder would be premiering it. Um, so I watched it, you know, the first opportunity I had. And it, it surprised me in a lot of ways, the Jay. I don't know about you. Like, I don't know. Like, okay, how about this? Tell me this. Uh, what were your expectations going into it? Because I don't know how much you knew about this other than just maybe some news blips here and there. I didn't know if you read a lot about it or if you really knew what this was about. You, you called it with the news blips here and there. You know, I knew a little bit of the aspects behind it. I knew about the Lutheran Society thing and, and things like that. But it almost without having any idea what the film's about, of course, you develop your own in your own imagination what it could okay. be. And it was a lot different than I was kind of anticipating truly in a good way. Yeah. And I really thought this was a hell of an experience. Uh, the fact that it's a little under an hour uh, running time as well. Uh, it was just a, a breezy watch uh, for the first time, as you mentioned, uh, initially, I was planning on watching it more than once because it was 54 minutes. But again, with, with the time I had, I only got to it once within the week, but you know, nonetheless uh, it was, it was definitely an experience and we'll break it down a bit more. But my initial outtake was that it was not exactly what I expected. Yeah. Without a doubt. So uh, the amusement park is the story of an elderly man who finds himself in exactly that an amusement park. Uh, but only this amusement park has more to do with capitalism and the sheer terror associated with getting older than it does with rides or any carnival game. Um, to me, now, George Romero's career uh, spanned several decades, so he changed as a filmmaker, uh, obviously because of skill level and because of his age, you know, like your outlook on things are a little bit different uh, at certain ages and stuff. Um now, I don't think Romero was at his strongest as a director earlier in his career. I thought he would get better as time would go on. Um, but his early movies, uh, the one thing that I'll say about them that they all have in common, and it's something that uh, Romero seemed to just kind of understand about filmmaking uh, without being really taught it by anybody, um, is that his first handful of movies, whether you like them or not, they are absolutely ferocious, uh, as in whatever the point of this movie is, it's going to get smashed into your face a million times. Uh, and that's pretty evident with Night of the Living Dead. Um, Season of the Witch is way more subdued, but it, it, it has the same kind of overall feel to that of just aggression. 
uh, even though it's a completely different story. And then probably out of all of them, the most aggressive one early on is the crazies. Um, and this movie was made in that time period. And I feel like it shares that same ferocity that his other movies do. And I, that was one of the things that not surprised me because I knew that's kind of how he was as a filmmaker. But seeing this subject matter with that type of ferocity is honestly one of the things that that makes this like a terrifying movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, you know, that's kind of the, the, the point of course, and the beginning opens up with a narrator and he closes the film that's, as well. That's Link, not to get too ahead. Playing himself, by the way, that's Lincoln Mazel. He introduces himself as himself in real life. Yep. And they don't really get back into that whenever you're seeing the movie unfold. So you just assume it's him. Exactly. And he bookends it really well with how they did that. That's what makes this. a. It's just like a cool little package. This film turned into. I had a quick question sure. for you. Was this originally completed in 73? Yes. Okay, because IMDb has it as 2019 because that's when it premiered on Shutter, but I don't know why they would put that because it was completed. Because it was never released for public consumption until 2019 when it first premiered. So that makes sense because that brings up a huge aspect as well, hey, uh, that I looked at it with this. So from uh, again, I'm just assuming here. I honestly didn't research this or or look too much into it. I'd I'd like to eventually. That... He was um, contacted, approached, I was going to say, by the Lutheran Film Division. And they kind of wanted him to make a kind of like a public announcement, yeah, like a kind of like educational yep. film. Exactly. Uh, about how the elderly are treated in, in modern society and, and things along those lines. And I think Romero because of how creative he is given that job and opportunity just kind of took this to where he wanted to go. Yeah, I did. And he wasn't, you know, he had no agenda. Well, he didn't strike me as the type of person that wanted to just make a by the numbers, like, you know, all right, boys and girls, shut out the lights and put on the film strip about this where it's like, you know, like, exactly. That's what I'm alluding to. be difficult for everyone. You know, and then they, yeah, it's like physical right. nature, you know, it's just boring. And sh- and that's not what Romero was trying to do. Um, and plus, he was making this movie on someone else's dime. So it's like a chance for him to make something a little bit different and gain further experience into making movies. Because, you know, you know this, too, like any any movie you make, you get better every time you do it, uh, whether you want to or not. You do. That's just it's more experience at it. So and you do see a lot of people if you watch the end credits of this movie, um, a lot of people that was working with Romero on the films that he made at the time worked on this, too. Mainly like Bill Heinzman, who played the original zombie from Night of the Living Dead, uh, you know, like Rudy Ricci and people like there's a, there's a bunch of people that worked on this that uh, were in the, amongst that first group of people that Romero would work with. And that would change uh Kind of like after this movie, like it, it seemed like it really changed for the first time once he made Martin, uh, that he was like working with different people and then he would stick with those people for X amount of years. Um, but that's pretty evident here. And this movie completely has his, uh, fingerprints all over it. Like you could just, it's, it has the type of mood, 
hundred percent in the, the editing style that Romero has is, is very evident in this. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, man, this is a, uh, an actual amusement park in the, the Pittsburgh area that hasn't been around for a long, long time. West Penn yeah, park, Westview. Or Westview park. I'm sorry. But, um, he went to an amusement park with a freaking camera, dude. And like this movie is like, he did all of the like cool kind of shit you could do in an amusement park. And I'll tell you what, man, there's a scene where, and the, this to me is the best scene in the movie where there's a bunch of people in the amusement park and they're all getting like ushered into like, it looked like a fun house or something. And he doesn't want to go, but then he's like, okay, you know, whatever, I'll just go. So once he gets pushed through the doors, he's then in like a hospital or an institution. And he's like, fuck that. I don't want to be in here. So he like runs out back into the amusement park. But once he gets out there, everyone's gone. And then all of a sudden there's three bikers that show up on their motorcycles and they beat the living shit out of them and they take everything from them. And that's kind of like what this is built up to create the crescendo we see at the end. Um, this movie is incredibly powerful for just being like 57 minutes. And like how you said it was, it was way different than what I expected. I don't know if it was different than what I expected, at least storyline wise and stuff. But it was different than I expected of like what I got out of it, because especially I don't know if it's like maybe the age we're at now, like, you know, you're in your 40s. So you start thinking about your mortality a little bit more than you ever did before. Um, If you allow the amusement park to get in your head, this movie can be fucking terrifying. And I'm not one to really be scared by movies. You know that about me. Right. And this one. Yeah. Cause the thing that stood out for me, cause we're, you know, with this just being released, doing what we can to dance around spoiling for anybody uh, as we do with, with some of the newer ones, even though as we went over, this was older, but it's just being released. Uh, so I'll try to tiptoe around it, but it's the scene where the young couple goes into the fortune yep. teller. That one's rough. And then it goes, that one's rough because it goes to this flash because she, she basically tells them, are you sure you want to see, your future yep. to the end because they, you know, they're just like free loving kids. They just kind of want to see, like they said, Oh, we just want to see if we'll still be together when we're older. And it turns into this whole amazingly shot, you know, kind of fast, you know, I wouldn't call it, it's not a flashback. It's like a fast yep. forward because it's their future kind of thing. And again, it's going into his allegory about the nightmarish realities of growing older. And man, is that powerful? And the, I, I don't know if that's a spoiler, but no. the dude comes out and does well, something. Dude, it's just ridiculous I, when he comes out of the tent. Yeah, you know? I don't think us saying anything that happens in this movie can really be a spoiler because you need to see the Truly, way it's you have to see it to, to get even where yes. he's coming from. Um, but dude, like, man, this one really like stuck with me when I watched it, and. Yeah, One of the me. things that really made me sad, though, is that uh, through the years, as you know, I've, like I said, I've, I'm a huge, huge George Romero fan. I have his entire catalog of films and I've watched them all numerous times and I've watched them all with commentary. And it kind of struck me uh, maybe the next day or so after I watched this that we're never going to get that for this. Um, that I know of, like, I don't think he ever recorded anything, even just on his own, uh, to kind of preserve for that reason or anything. Um, so like, it's most likely 
uh, that we're never going to get that. That really makes me sad because I would love to hear what he would have to say about the making of this and tell like in his own words, what his point was and maybe what some of his inspirations were of, of making it the way that he did. As you mentioned with that story, with his wife kind of saying like, you should put it out. I would assume that, that yeah, like the way that story went that he didn't, you know, he kind of just put it in the uh, archives. Basically. Yeah. Like they, so I'm sure that it, that it just didn't seem like, dude, you, you know this too, cause you've made movies and you've even tinkered around with a lot of other creative stuff in your life. Sometimes you do creative things that are, you know, like you want other people to see it and stuff. And then you do other creative things with the intent of no one ever seeing it ever anyone. Like I've done things and written things that not a soul has ever read than me. And people don't even know it exists other than me. Um, and that, and it's not meant for anything more than that. And sometimes that's what happens with an artist. And it's unfortunate when they pass away because like, I don't know about you, but like, I really wouldn't want people releasing something of mine that wasn't meant for public consumption because it could kind of hurt your legacy or what people think about you. Um, and it was completely unintended for something like that. You know, what's funny. I have a personal experience where we were in talks with another company, uh, with our production company, Churchill Pictures, to shoot some promo videos, you know, basically like marketing and, and, and ads and commercials for them. And we were kind of given free reign, you know, so it kind of reminded me of this, you know, not on the same level, obviously, and all that. But with the, the free reign, we kind of did what we wanted yeah. to do. And the end product ended up not being how that person saw it, you know, so the partnership yep. didn't work out. But that's still a video I'm very proud of, well, you know, so I you know, a lot of well, dude, yeah, I was gonna say a lot of times with that stuff, it's like if you don't have a direction to give me on a job for hire, basically, the exactly. only thing I really owe you is a competently made professional film. It do, You don't have to yep. agree with the subject matter and stuff, but I'm not going to like, you know, like if I'm making a thing for like, you know, it's oh, you're making this thing for this uh, daycare center, right? It's probably inappropriate for me to be like, all right, I got to get 25 cheerleaders twerking. Um, like that doesn't work. Your job is to be like, you know, push the business, do it respectfully, be creative and mix it up because they literally gave you no direction. Right. So, yeah. And, that, and that's how I kind of looked at this where they were like, okay, you know, we want this PSA from you, you know, just about. Aging, you know, the situation in nursing homes and aging, and then he remarried it up. Yep. <laughs> you know, and and this was like a great experience. Uh, like uh, Kevin Carr from Fat Guys at the Movies says, "Hey, you know, it does feel at <laughs> it does feel at times like the most twisted public service video you're ever going to see." Yeah, I mean, it's dude. It, okay, this is the way I summed it up. Okay. Uh, because as I said, I'm a huge George Romero nerd. So I said, overall, it's a fine example of George Romero's brilliance. It's taking something and being able to flip it on its head and make something shockingly refreshing and original, but always ringing true to the director's personal catchphrase. Stay scared. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was. it's really good, man. Really good movie. And as we mentioned, I kind of give it a little bit of time and rewatch it. Not too far from now. Check it out again. Without a doubt. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And it's something that uh, also too, just to be on the film nerd side of it, I would really like to own a copy of this of my own, 
you know, whether it be on Blu-ray, DVD or what have you. Um, but I exactly. want this on my shelf for sure. So. Oh, you, cause you have every Romero 100%. movie, don't you? Hard and Coffee multiple, form. yeah. multiple formats and multiple same formats on top of, of course. It. Yeah. I'm, I'm short a few. That's, that's getting me back on that what, just uh, uh, as a completionist. Which ones are you looking you know? for? Cause I, I want to say you even like, I don't, don't think you have season of the Witch? I don't think I have crazies. Oh, I have seasonal. I think the only one I just never grabbed was crazies. I have everything else. I, okay. I believe because I, I have Night Riders. Okay. Do you even have all um, the newer stuff? Do you have Bruiser? I, I don't know if I have Bruiser. I've seen Bruiser. I don't it's, know if I have it. I'm going to have to double check. Dude, that's that. one of those ones that like for the longest time, it got like an early release on DVD and like for the lo- like nothing ever came again until I think maybe a, somebody put like a like maybe Shout Factory or somebody put the Blu-ray out. Um, but it didn't have really that's not the most popular one. And I think it's a good movie and I think it's super underrated now. But for some reason, it just doesn't even get respect from a lot of like the distributors and shit. Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought Bru- Bruiser was cool. It was Absolutely. Different. Especially for for Romero. well, he tried. You know, whenever people would give him money to make something that wasn't a zombie movie, he went all out and really tried to make something different. So, uh, you got a tagline for us on this one, the Jay. I do hate you up for the amusement park. The tagline is, of course, I moved my thing. See you in the park someday. Just like Lincoln Mazel says. So as we do here on the program, yep. the Jay, we do five stars on our rating scale. What are you going for this one? Going a solid three and a half with the amusement park. Okay, I liked it a little bit more than you did. I gave it a solid four. Um, I'm curious to see how this one is going to grow on me through the years, just like all of his other movies have, too. Um, That's one of the fun things, at least, even though we're not going to get any more brand new projects from from George. Uh, You know, you still get to go revisit the other ones. He's had a really great career stuff. And, you know, anytime I can talk George Romero, the J, you know, I'm down for it. So. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 of course, have the personal connection being Pittsburgh guys, you know, going to the Monroeville Mall is our mall. We both lived, you know, 10-minute drive from Monroeville Mall yep. growing up. And uh, you have the connection with doing the Day of the Dead special feature, and I have the connection with my mom being mm-hmm. Martin. So that all just that just all adds to it. And, you know, I'll just always will consume anything George Romero. Like, like we even talked about some of his – his scripts that might get made into things and stuff like that. Yeah, that would be so, fantastic. It's all cool, man. Absolutely, man. The more the merrier as far as George oh, goes. One, one more thing about the movie, non-spoiler, I won't get into it. I'll just throw it at you. But the scene with the three little pigs. Yeah. In the book. And the, 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 man, yeah, dude, brutal. there's, some, Good there's shit. some stuff in that movie that's a real gut punch, man, that, uh, you know, you, yeah. you just don't really <laughs> expect it. And there it is. You know, it's like just when, just when you think George is done with the tricks, you know, he comes back with a couple more. So yeah. that's highly recommend, highly recommend. Absolutely. Thieves. Definitely check that out. You guys can check it out right now on shutter, which I believe you can subscribe to right now for five ninety nine a month. And they always have a free trial for you. If you just want to check it out and see what's going on. Uh, definitely worth a look, especially for stuff like this. And for the thing we're going to be talking about after we come back from our commercial break, which is Joe Bob Briggs down at the last drive in. We're going to be talking a double feature of Evil Speak from 1981 and The Day of the Beast from 1995. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast.
Hey dudes, check us out for the summer vacation special. Start next week, the J. Hey man, this is the J, and we're promoting for the summer vacation specials. Looking forward to it, brah. Dude, first week, we're going to give you guys our top 10 favorite SummerSlam matches of all time, dude. And then, dude, we're going to do the Mount Rouge, Ma, the Mount Rouge, dude, the Mount dude, Rouge. Dude, it's Rushmore, man. Rushmore. Uh, the Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah. Cool, so man. We're, we're, we're going to do our Mount Rushmore on some of our favorite topics and stuff. And then, you know, just chilling out on vacation, man. So join us for the next two weeks for our summer vacation specials right here on the What's Real Podcast, dudes. Hang 10, dudes. And we're back, except for this time, me and the Jay are down here at the old dusty drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs. Uh, every week, as we hear, uh, we do here on the show. And I should mention, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to be uh, basically off of the regular show for two weeks. Uh, we're going to have the specials going. But uh, the Jay, you'd probably be down for this. Do you want to, uh, whenever we come back for episode 76, you want to top off and do the last week of the last drive-in for the season? Yeah, yeah, we could kind of do a retrospective on on the season, even seasons, you know, kind of brush through and then and then get the last weekend because we, we did every other week. So we talked about that. We definitely want to break down the, the final week and not miss it because I think we could say on the show since it's announced on Twitter, right, who they announced as the special guest for the season finale. Oh, yeah. I forget who the fuck it is. Tell me, <laughs> Jay. I don't remember. Our man, the the great one. Like, you know, everything goes weirdly hand in hand here on the What's Real podcast. We were talking about trauma <laughs> and Lloyd Kaufman. And the guest is actually going to be Roger Corman, ah. who Corman yep. is kind of, uh, you know, parallel to them as far as like starting a lot of big Hollywood people's careers and things like that. And I mean, and dude, Corman would be very interesting. Guest, I can't wait to see what yes, they're going to what he talks what he talks about. There's going to be potential for all kinds of stuff. Yeah, man. that'll be cool. And it's cool too because like dude, even though he's up there in age, man, like he's not out of it. Like he'll he knows a lot of shit about his career and the stuff and the people he's worked on, worked on stuff with and you know, so that'll definitely be a really good episode for sure. I'm definitely looking forward to that. But let's not get uh, so far ahead of ourselves because we still got this week to talk about. And that is first up from 1981, directed by Eric Weston, the vehicle for none other than Clint Howard, who was also a guest this week on The Last Drive-In. We're talking Evil Speak. So this is the breakdown of what Evil Speak is about, the J. Bullied by classmates, a pudgy military school student fights back by computer with the devil. <laughs> Sounds like something I'd yep. want to watch. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what the movie is. You have uh, Clint Howard in the movie playing the character of Stanley Cooper Smith, a.k.a. Stanley Cooper Dick, as he's called <laughs> by the bullies, um, which, by the way, uh, Bubba, the main bully, is played by Don Stark, a.k.a. Bob, the 
the dad of that 70s uh, show. Yeah, on that 70s show, uh, Donna Pensiotti's dad. So Bob Pensiotti. Uh, but he plays the lead bully in this one. And uh, this movie is almost unexplainable, really, because like it just doesn't make sense if I tell you what's going on. And um, and also, it's not like the movie's a mess either. The movie's fine. It's actually a lot of fun. It's just the movie is really bizarre in its setup and what they're really going for here. And I was going to mention and kindly, weirdly ahead of its time with the computer aspect with this being released yeah. in 81. And dude, I don't know if you saw this or not, uh, but they were talking. Uh, Clint Howard was talking with Joe Bob in between the things. And he goes, well, you wouldn't know it now. But he's like, they went through painstaking details to make sure all the computer stuff was like accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a hey, good for them at the time. But like watching it in 2021, like who the fuck cares? It yeah, all looks exactly. like nonsense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically he figures out a way to summon the devil in the form of a man named Esteban uh, through a computer. And he he's trying to get him to sacrifice, uh, you know, blood sacrifices so that he can be brought back to life. Um, they don't really explain how a lot of this works. It's just through, you know, basic mumbo jumbo. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Stanley Cooper Smith is the character that is just bullied and, you know, uh, oddly enough, like puts on a, a happy face to get through the day. Uh, and he just doesn't really want to be bothered is, is the gist of the movie. But of course, it's an 80s horror movie. We know they're not going to leave him alone. Um, they pester the shit out of him. Uh, he befriends like uh, one of the cooks. Uh, at the uh, the military school. So this dude will like help him out and give him food and shit. And he ends up giving him a uh, dog, a little puppy. Uh, so of course that's naturally a setup for somebody to do something to the puppy. Um, and, you know, it's basically set up as a way for, uh, you know, Stanley to use Satan and Esteban for revenge. And it's all just one big build up to the, to the revenge plot, you know, plot at the, the end of the movie like many of these but don't don't forget the secondary uh cast members in this the pigs oh yeah the, the pigs, pigs are nasty and like katie my wife katie was like in and out through this like you know just stopping in for certain things and catching parts of it <laughs> the classic yep. thing like you know shauna's more in tune with these kind of things what i get all the time for my life like what the fuck are you watching now like this <laughs> this pig's eating this lady <laughs> yeah I I'm, mean, I'm like it's, it's pig porn huh and i'm into that now yeah and then you just start making fucking pig noises yeah. and shit uh richard mall shows up in this one as father esteban um which is hilarious from fucking night court yeah um and then you know there's a few other people like rg armstrong shows up in this one as sarge who and I forgot about this. So there's a scene. Now, this is kind of weird because, you know, uh, Clint Howard's character has been in the basement of this academy where he's supposed to be cleaning the basement, but he just hangs out down there. And Sarge is like, you know, the local fucking loser drunko that lives in the basement. And one day, like, you know, he's doing his, his Satan shit down there and he doesn't want to get caught. So, you know, they have a little encounter and you think they're about to fight until Sarge says to him, hey, boy, 
You want you want to see how I could turn a little boy into a little girl? <laughs> so that's a way of threatening rape. Uh, so that's part of this movie too. Um, the movie is just really odd. It's it's way better than it has any right to be. Um, I certainly wouldn't think it's a classic. And I'm not the biggest like nerd out fanboy for Clint Howard like a lot of people are. But this is a total vehicle for him. And he does a really, really good job in it. It's it's kind of funny to think about because he became uh, kind of a cliche or uh, almost a parody of himself. Um, But this is way before that. So he was actually really trying hard and you know, trying to make a, a, the best movie that he could. And I felt like he did a really good job. He's definitively the best part about the movie. Oh, I would agree. And, and and as you mentioned, hey, you know, he was the guest on the, the last drive-in. They have this like little setup where there's like a, you know, basically a mannequin body with the TV for a head that the guests pop up on and Joe Bob talks to them. And he had, he had some really good insight. I mean, you're talking, you know, obviously for, for those that may not be in the know, Clint Howard is brother of Ron Howard, famous Hollywood actor and director. And so he's been in Hollywood since he was, I think he said four years old. And as he mentioned, he was kind of like the first, you know, pioneering character actor, you know, and he mentions like I was born to be a character actor. And that was one of the yep. reasons he took on this role because it was the lead role in this. And he talks about running this script by his dad, you know, and his dad saying, yeah, why, why not do it? And, you know, it is kind of weird. They did. Uh, they did get into this a little bit. Now, this is something that I probably know a, a way too much about. Frankly, uh, there was a time period where I was writing a book about this, um, but this was one of the movies that would eventually become one of the infamous video nasties in the UK, which were uh, supposed to be like the, the worst of the worst, like the most violent, uh, disgusting, no redeeming social value type movies. Um, But they're so wildly inconsistent. I mean, to think that somebody would view this movie in the same breath of something like a cannibal Holocaust is laughable. Yeah, Um, but they brought this up. And uh, Joe Bob said the only reason why it would have been on there is because of the religion. Yeah. And it's weird because, dude, the religious aspect of this movie, this is like the least religious movie I've ever seen that has to do with Satan. Yeah, pretty much. Because like you said, like the whole quote unquote gimmick of it is the computer anyway. So that aspect is more prominent than anything. Like there's the and it's. It's a military school, too. It's not like it's some religious place or yep. something, you know. I, I was just going to mention, there's the Reverend Jameson character. That's about it. And he's like... That's it. Really cold and barely in it, so... Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's, the, I guess, the, the parishioner that any military academy would have available. They probably have rabbis and shit, too, for them. Yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, it's really just a secondary thing that you know is just set up there to be like okay here's this religious thing and now here's satan in the computer you know what i mean and the thing is is this movie on the surface just from like you know here in the synopsis it sounds like it's a total cheese fest like just hearing the plot sounds like it belonged more on the previous week's one of like shot on video nonsense but it's not. It was shot on film. It was made by fairly competent people. And dude, the fact of the matter is, regardless of how goofy it sounds and, the you know, it has Clint Howard in it, like it's a pretty good flick. 
Yeah, I liked it. It was entertaining. You know, that's the key word I always throw out there, you know, fun and entertaining. But but yeah, it was entertaining. Kept my attention. Uh, again, solid runtime. Did run you think it over- Oh, yeah. Like, did you think it'd be cornier than what it was? A hundred percent. And as you mentioned, the, the crescendo of any kind of revenge flick is the ending and the best part. And it has a good climax. So, you you did, you know, you'd go out on a on a big note. I don't know if you did this or not. I hope you did. Uh, and, and you probably did because of Joe Bob. Did you watch this through the credits? I always do now. Yeah, because I know he comes on after. So I just leave the credits run. Did you see what happens in this one where they set it up for a sequel? Uh, yep. Yeah, I did. And it's like, damn, that's kind of disappointing. But it was pretty cool because like as soon as they got back, Joe Bob's like, you guys set this up perfectly for a sequel. <laughs> that's what the, the first thing happened? he said. Yeah. And he went through the explanation of that. And I thought that was pretty cool, too. And it's just, again, uh, I've seen Evil speak, right? Uh, and, and I was fine with watching it again. I thought it was cool they were showing it. It fits, you know, the mold for what Joe Bob does. Um, but it just reminded me when I saw that part, I was like, this is why I love when fucking Joe Bob's on. Cause you always get that, you know, I'm a movie nerd. I know that a lot of people probably wouldn't give a fuck about a lot of this stuff. I always get something out of Joe Bob pretty much every week, whether it's information or I just like really like his joke that he tells at the end, you know, like it's always something. And it just, it's, it's a totally different experience, which kind of leads why I think we like this so much, because there's only so many ways you could watch a movie. And this is a way that I think a lot of people have never really experienced. And it's a lot of fun. And I think people that don't experience that are kind of missing out on something. Yeah. And that's why this was such a good concept. And I think it was, you know, Shutter's biggest ratings uh, gaining show because uh, within the pandemic too, because you feel like you're watching the, the movie within the community. Like they call their fans, the, uh, what the they driving mutants, the, the mutants, and you know, through Twitter and stuff, everybody's watching together. And of course, you got Joe Bob and Darcy and, and their crew and stuff. And yeah, we always talk about that aspect of it. It just gives you that well, warm, cozy feeling of watching with people too. And dude, I do enjoy it now. Don't get me wrong. Like you know how much I like Joe Bob and look forward to it and shit. But dude, whenever we were in the thick of the pandemic. And shit was really bad, like at first, like when everything was super uncertain and everything shut down. And then Joe Bob came on. And like, it's weird, like how long it feels like now from till next week's show. But I remember at that time period, it felt like a week would just be like, boom, Joe Bob, boom, Joe Bob. Every Friday. And I was so happy because that was like in a world where there really wasn't anything to do. It was something fun to do. Something to look you know what I to. mean? Yeah. Yeah. You throw a little party at your house. Maybe have a couple beers or whatever you like to partake in. Maybe make some snacks, you know, like have some friends over, whatever you want to do. Like, it's just a fun little experience and a fun way to watch. They, they found a way to make old movies appointment television, which gives them a little bit more value uh, to at least TV people. Uh, than what they had before. And that's a pretty powerful thing, man. That's why I love Joe Bob and I love The Last Drive-In. Yeah, really cool. This this is a funny tidbit from the Jay Hey Yo because we had just watched the uh, Maniac Cop movies and James Earl Jones' dad was in it. And yep. I saw the, I saw the one dude was Claude Earl Jones. And you got so, played. <laughs> I clicked on him like, oh, is that coach, the old fat white dude? Like, yeah, he's not related to them. <laughs> or maybe, so you never know. I yeah. doubt it, but you never know. Yeah, there's adoption. 
But uh, we got a tagline, the J, for this one. Yeah, there's two of them for this one. So the first one is uh, Evil Speak. Remember the little kid you used to pick on? Well, he's a big boy now. Which, again, which makes no sense. Don't make any sense for the movie. And the other one was Data Incomplete, Human Blood Required, Thus Spake the Computer. And uh, we that's the what's real word of the week. Spake, S-P-A-K-E. I do not personally know what that means. Yeah, I don't either. And I like <laughs> to pride myself on having a nice yeah. vocabulary. But yeah. No good. No go for me. Sorry. The evil but, speak uh, tagline gets us. Yeah, of all things. So <laughs> uh, as we do here on the show with the five star rating scale, the J, I'm going to give this one three stars. Okay, I'm right behind you. I went with two and a half for Evil Speak. I did like it. Okay, so moving right along here, we are going to go into the year 1995. Uh, this is from director Alex De La, De La Glacia, and this is El Dia de la Bestia, a.k.a. The Day of the Beast. So the story revolves around a Basque Roman Catholic priest dedicated to committing as many sins as possible uh, a death metal salesman from Carabanchel. He was great. And the, and the Italian host of a TV show on the occult. They go on a literal trip through Christmas time Madrid to hunt for and prevent the reincarnation of the Antichrist. So uh, this reminds me, man, I, uh, I'd seen this movie years ago, okay? And I had it recommended to me, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. And I remember being fucking shocked watching it that, that it's like a comedy because I just wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Um, but, dude, the thing is in this movie, this is like one of those movies where for whatever reason, uh, uncertain parties get bound together like a priest trying to sin as much as he can and a devil worshiping black metal dude. Um, that dude is fucking funny their uh chemistry together is great it's what pretty much makes the movie yeah uh, that and just the, the sheer ignorance of the police like or of the priest where he's like i must sin and he's doing like the stupidest shit imaginable because he's a cloistered priest like <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean like he's never been fucking anywhere that's all he knows so like his idea of being a bad boy and sinning is like preposterous it's funny like he steals a book and he's like i stole this book <laughs> like <laughs> okay you know like it's a book you gangster um but you know it's it's a pretty neat movie and the thing that i like about this movie is that clearly alex de la glacia is a big horror fan um and he does a lot of homage stuff in this movie which is pretty oh, yeah. cool too like the the scene at the end with the Schweppes sign and stuff. Just yeah, like that was great. Classic monster movie type shit, but with the comedic twist to it. And, uh, you know, dude, it, it's a movie that like a lot of people like they even kind of hinted at it uh, when they announced it. Like Darcy was like, oh, subtitles, you know. But like, dude, I always say to people like say that you don't watch movies without subtitles and quit watching them. Like you are purposely missing out on really great stuff, man. Like really entertaining, fun stuff. And I think this movie's a great example of that. Like it's a movie that a lot of people wouldn't even bother to take a chance on. And it's something that I think would surprise a lot of people. 
I agree. I didn't know, you know, this was another one uh, disclaimer off the bat that the J has never seen before. I think you mentioned you had seen it once before. Hey, y'all. Uh, so, yeah, one yeah time. Going, going into it. That's uh, again, why I'm a movie nerd, why I love this shit. Um, one of the best film experiences is going into a film that you have no clue about like this. And it just, uh, you know, as it went on, man, just dragged me in more and more. Uh, we were just talking about uh, metal and, you know, talking in one of our specials and me being a metal head. So of course the black metal aficionado stood out, but he was hilarious anyway. And one of the first things that had me dying, cause you know how I feel about male full frontal nudity. I think it's hilarious probably dude, just because the, the fact that it's not common, you know, and, uh, and he, this his grandfather has his robe open and <laughs> he's dude, all, he's always bottomless. <laughs> so like, I got it right. Like they kind of showed you what was going on. Right. And then there's that one scene where he he has to call the house and it's like they just cut back to the house and it's like they're just watching tv and yeah he's, he's in the chair cock and balls <laughs> hanging out like just like grunting and yeah. shit yeah, but yeah he, that's dude that's like little stupid shit that writes itself that you could put into a movie that like i personally can't, like every i can't concentrate because i'm fucking dying because it's so out of place that's why it's good for comedy because uh, on top of it, he feeds the grandfather acid because that's a huge thing. Yeah. Acid, this whole movie. Yeah. And he's like, he, he needs he needs an edge. <laughs> and it's dude, that's that's part of the fun of this movie, too, that it just like it gets fucking to the point of just ridiculousness. But oh, dude, because there, there's like slapstick works. in it, which, you know, me, I love slapstick like. There's the one point they're running down the steps in that crazy apartment complex, and he, the, that lady hits him down the steps, and he does a fall down yep. the steps, and then he, he like throws her, and she goes down like bouncing like a pinball. That was a Dude, great scene. You know, like we've come, like the, of course the the one person that I always go back to this, uh, especially with me and you, just in our conversations. You know, like I've talked about Eli Roth movies, and I'm like, they don't understand the tone. Like they'll say funny shit at the wrong time. Yeah, they they or, miss the tone and, and timing. And like this movie gets it all the way through. It has the perfect tone. It knows when to say the joke. It knows when to hold back. It knows when to, you know, be goofy and not be goofy. And, you know, I just felt that I'm like, see, this is somebody that gets it. They understand satire and what they're trying to do and yeah. the appropriate moods and things to do at certain times. And it just makes the movie work. I mean, it's not this movie isn't like some mind blowing classic, but it just manages to do what it does and it does it pretty well. And it's funny because like it's it it's for how stupid it is and for the fact that it doesn't take itself seriously, it's extremely well done. Yeah, and also given it, you know, credentials, as Joe Bob said, especially in mid 90s Spain, this was a huge hit in Spain and I could see won all kinds of I mean, awards. Yeah, dude, it's, it's kind of a shame that this movie hasn't been, you know, really found by major audiences because I think this is something that, you know, in the mid nineties would have played very well to American audiences. So yeah. it's just weird that it just doesn't get that type of attention, but stuff like that happens all the time. It's just a, it's the nature of the beast and it's kind of a shame, but it, you know, it ain't going to stop anytime soon. Pun intended, hate you. But yeah, I, I just had three bullet points. Of course, shouting out the the male full frontal. Of course, the chick <laughs> with the the natural D's, yep. jiggling and bouncing around everywhere. It always adds adds to the 
the film entertainment and fun. Jiggly D's can also be referred to as tots. Yeah, or some JDs. And uh, (laughs) the the pre-fermentioned scene with them hanging on the 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 sign on acid and like the black metal dude just fucking around that was great that like even gave me like is he gonna fall you know and then he does fall and they catch him he's like i just want to kid myself they're like no you dude, don't dude, you're gonna make us fall <laughs> dude that's like the the part where the fucking uh the tv host dude falls yeah it's like yeah. oh he's dead and then it's like nope he's just all fucked up but he's fine <laughs> yeah, he's still going. and it's like he just gets fucking broke the way he lands on that sign at the bottom i'm like <laughs> yeah. and he's just all bleeding like yeah Ugh. he just looks up like uh like looks down at the people and uh yeah, yeah the other other part I, hey yeah, just the last bullet point real quick was the um the goat and and that goat creature at the end that drops the black metal dude that that was actually kind of cool yeah, I like that. I mean, dude, the, the movie, I felt like it went out of its way to like be a satire, but also being pretty original and creative in the way that they were doing everything. Like it wasn't just by the numbers like I wasn't expected. And I even seen it before, but I forgot all about that creature at the end. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that is right. That's pretty cool that they like they didn't really have to do that, but they did. Right. Yeah, it makes it good. Yeah, it's a solid dude. Like we said, it's not easy doing a comedy and it's not easy doing a horror comedy, but like it's incredibly difficult to make a horror comedy that like exceeds through cultures like this isn't made for American culture, but I can watch it and enjoy it. So like it's pretty well done, man. Like in that regard, you know what I'm saying? I got to shout out my other favorite part when they get inside from being, I think it was from when they were hanging and they had to go in that apartment and it's Christmas in Spain. So the apartment set up like Christmas and the black metal dude has a shotgun and they walk in and the little girl's like, Oh, are you Santa Claus? Hey mom and dad, Santa Claus is here. And he just walks in the dining room and the dad's setting the table and he just punches him in the face without words, yep. just punches him in the face. Just, and he's like, Merry Christmas to the wife and leaves. I was like, yep. dude, I was dying. That was then great. He pl- like, and even like whenever she's like, Hey, it's Santa Claus. <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, Santa. Yeah. Like, it's just, just like, yeah, Santa. Yeah, Santa. <laughs> like, but that's why I love that. There was like no, no altercation words or anything. He just rolls up in the dining room and, and cold cocks him. Yep. Totally right up. As soon as I seen that, I'm like, Jared's going to be cracking. Oh, of course. Yeah. Part. There was, there was some decent slapstick in this. I love slapstick. Physical yeah. And comedy. it, that, well, dude, slapstick is like the one type of comedy that I think like any like that's why like the three yeah like seeing so somebody good. fall that doesn't get hurt or something like that. German people could watch that and laugh at it. Yeah. Asian people think like we all fun. That's like universally funny. So, uh, like, dude, I mean, I'll be honest with you, dude. If I was gonna make a comedy tomorrow, I'd probably be more inclined to go with slapstick because I'm like, I don't really know how to do a lot of the other stuff. I can figure out slapstick. Yeah, no, I love some, but that's, some slapstick. And I think that's also the point why a lot of comedians look at that as hack work, too, because it's like any idiot could just fall around. But it's like, yeah, yeah, but not, jackass, but not any idiot could be Chevy Chase. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's part yeah. of the deal. So, but yeah, man, uh, hit us with a tagline for this one, the Jay. So I got a couple here. Hey, you for the day of the beast. When saints become sinners, no one is safe. Or vulgar, perverse, outrageous, and absolutely entertaining. That sounds more like a, a review, but well, I like the when saints become sinners, no one is safe. 
And then I found this one and I, it, it's, does, it sounds like a description, a devil's devilishly dark comedy. I get uh, it, but it's like, yeah, eh, whatever. Ba-dum-bum. But yeah, man, uh, on the five star rating scale, what are you giving this one? The J three and a half with day of the beast, man. Like you said, it was just, you know, for a Spanish film from the nineties, it just came out of nowhere for me. Really liked it. I'm going to give this one three stars. I do like it. Uh, don't love it, but I like it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I thought it worked pretty well for the last drive-in, and I was pretty surprised uh, overall that it was on there. So that was pretty cool for sure. So we are going to take another quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking some Dark Side of the Ring, Dynamite Kids. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. Two guys with troubled past, disturbed minds, fighting inner demons who are succeeding expectations of what people thought they could overcome. Now they want to reveal it to the world and help others conquer theirs. For t-shirts, hats, and more, check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. Once again, this is uh, another uh, come to an end, so to speak. Um, I'm sure on episode 76, we'll do a little run through of the season, uh, or I should say the half season, because this is the season finale uh, with the show uh, returning this September. So we will return to, uh, you know, to cover these uh, this September whenever they re-air. But for the last episode of the season, and it's one that we knew would be a good one, this is on Dynamite Kid. Uh, Dynamite Kid is uh, obviously a wrestler from England. Uh, very, very small guy. Um, he was like 160 some pounds coming up in professional wrestling. Um, but that's not the way we remember him. Um, we probably first uh, knew him as being part of the tag team, the British Bulldogs in yep. the WWF. Um, and he was a massive guy at that point. He was always short. But he could go. He was fast. Uh, he would do crazy high spots. Uh, and that was kind of my introduction to Dynamite Kid through the, through the years. And I was a huge fan of Dynamite Kid. Now, our fandom with him changed many years later. In the 90s, we were pretty hardcore wrestling fans, as we've mentioned here on the show. And one of our favorite wrestlers would go on to become infamous, none other than Chris Benoit. The thing that people may not realize about Chris Benoit is he is essentially a carbon copy down to size, uh, the way he worked, the way he wrestled, and the way he did pretty much everything. Including a steroids. Carbon copy, including steroids, a carbon copy of the Dynamite Kid. Now, he's also no- Dynamite Kid's also known uh, for a lot of other things, uh, one, of course, being steroids. Um, another, he was a notorious ribber in the business, which means he plays pranks on people. And he was notorious because the stuff that he would do was pretty gross and cruel. And, um, he wasn't known as being the nicest guy. Um, also years ago, uh, Jared even mentioned this last week on the show. Uh, he had put out a book that was pretty commonplace amongst hardcore fans. It was called pure dynamite, a very good read. Um, very good book. Uh, he would come out years later to say a lot of the information and stories in there were not true. Um, there is true stuff in there, but it's kind of been dissected at this point. What's what and who's who. Um, 
Now, without a doubt, I guess we could start saying it this way. The Dynamite Kid is probably one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. He's one of the most influential people that's ever wrestled in the professional wrestling industry. Um, He set a standard for smaller guys and for what we call as fans work rate, Uh, meaning it's just guys that are really good wrestlers. Their matches are athletic contests and they're very impressive. And they would be more likely what a wrestling fan would show a non-wrestling fan as opposed to like your typical Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy match or something like that. Um, So without a doubt, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of the wrestling we see today. If it wasn't for dynamite kid, there wouldn't have been junior heavyweights that we and cruiserweights that we've come to like through the years. There'd be no Rey Mysterio Jr., Jushin Thunder Liger, uh, Ultimo Dragon, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, probably Chris Jericho. I could go on and on and on without Dynamite Kid. These people would not be possible. But the Dynamite Kid was also, uh, you know, a drunk. A uh, he abused steroids to a terrible amount, including a story in his book where he talked about doing horse steroids when he couldn't get regular ones. Uh, He's also a domestic abuser and a general all-around shitty human being. And this pretty much gets into all that, the Jay. Every single bit of it, warts and all. One of the main talking heads, uh, of of course, besides his wife and daughters, which was huge, uh, he had a son that didn't take part in this. I don't know why, um, but most of his family was in it other than his son. And then one of his best friends from the business, which I didn't realize was Dan Spivey. Spivey, yeah. Spivey. So that yep. was funny because I remembered him from being the Waylon Mercy, Cape Fear kind of character oh, yeah. in the early 90s there in the WWF. And yeah, yeah, you broke it down really good. I, I want to throw my uh, shout out to my wife who came in during some of this and first her first take on his ribbing, she was like disgusted, you know, from an outsider yeah. is why I bring up her perspective. She was like, what an asshole, like, you know, because he's shit in somebody's bag. And she's like, yep. like, how do you do that to somebody? I'm like, yeah, he's, a, he's an asshole. That's what they're covering here. And then the other thing, she brought up a good debate that you kind of covered uh, real quick there in your breakdown, hey, you know, where when she was in the room when they were kind of breaking down his uh, his style and how his odd inspiring ring style, you know, was so far ahead of the game and would influence countless future wrestlers. And she said, well, wasn't Rey Mysterio uh, Lucha Libre? Like, wasn't he, they already doing it, that style? And I was like, well, that's a completely different style, Lucha Libre. Dynamite Kid was the first kind of hybrid, was my opinion on that, from, again, well, getting her perspective like as a quote-unquote outsider. See, it's, it's kind of like this. There's plenty of Lucha Libre wrestlers that are not cruiserweights. That's more like, you know how there's the European style, and it's kind of like what Regal does? That's more what Lucha Libre is. It's just more of a style than it is a particular, you know, size thing. Um, but it's, you know, and, and the thing is with dynamite is he's a hybrid of basically English wrestling and Japanese strong style. Um, now the reason why he got to be such the high flyer was because he happened to be in what is amongst wrestling fans considered one of the absolute best, biggest and benchmark feuds or rivalries in the history of professional wrestling. With Tiger, Tiger Mask. Mask matches. Uh, dude, so you know this, the Jay. Tiger Mask is a fucking absolute legend. There's few names in the history of professional wrestling that ring like Tiger Mask. 
Um, there's been multiple incarnations of Tiger Mask, I believe, up until they've had Tiger Mask. Even before. Eddie Guerrero portrayed Tiger Mask. He, he was he was Black Tiger, Black Tiger, which was like right. a variation on it. Yep. Um, but th- we're talking the, when I say the name of Tiger Mask rings bells. I'm talking the original, which is uh, Sayama, which is his real name. Dude, do you realize that Tiger Mask got his entire legacy from a three year period yeah that's nuts and a lot of that three years has to do with him wrestling dynamite kid so back to kind of what i was saying earlier about how we kind of discovered dynamite kid uh or i should say rediscovered dynamite kid so uh i ended up uh one time going to an ecw show you were there i'm pretty sure the jay and uh going to ecw shows in the 90s introduced us to people selling wrestling tapes that weren't wwf or wcw a lot of stuff from japan and just all around the world we can go on and on about this subject but long story short is went to an ecw show found a best of dynamite kid comp i was a huge dynamite kid fan so i bought it had no idea what was on it and when i watched this tape well, I remember even like telling you guys how and being like, dude, we got to watch this immediately. Like, you guys got to see this. And like, I remember finishing it, passing it off to you, passing it off to our buddy Squid. Like, we were all passing the tape around just so everybody could see it. And this tape was the first time that I saw in full his matches with Tiger Mask. Yep. And I couldn't get over what I was seeing. Now, at this time, I'd seen, because keep in mind, this is in the 90s, so I've already seen a lot of guys do this type of in style of wrestling. But the thing is with these two is Dynamite Kid would do things to a velocity I've never seen. Yeah, the velocity like and the thrown, pace. It, he would get, dude, there's one match where I see him do a suicide dive, which is when a guy's on the floor, a wrestler in the ring will run off the ropes and dive at the wrestler on the floor through the ropes. So they do a dive from the ring to the floor. I seen him do a suicide dive that was so aggressive and fast that he went all the way outside the ring and got his head stuck in the guardrail. <laughs> and like you said, and right with Chris Benoit, because remember that suicide dive Chris Benoit did the same thing the into one the right barrier, into the ladder. Yeah, into the ladder. Yep. Exactly. Well, he would do both. Actually, you're right. So yeah, that's true. Um, now at the time watching this. I just thought like, wow, man, this dude is amazing. Like he just goes full out like they're, you know, but then you realize eventually that he was doing this pretty much with no regard for his body whatsoever. Now he wouldn't hurt his opponents. He would not, you know, he wasn't stiff with opponents to the point where he would like hurt people that way. It was where he was taking the brunt of the punishment. So you know, in realizing that, and then years later when his book would come out, you realize that it caused, you know, him to be in a wheelchair for the last 25 years of his life. And also on that tape was something that they talked about in this documentary, which was his final match, was, which was a trios match in Michinoku Pro Wrestling in 1996. And it was towards the end of the tape. So I'm seeing all these matches of Dynamite in his prime and Dynamite this, Dynamite that. And then in his final match, he looks like a shell of himself. Yeah. He's a fraction of his own size. He's slow. He looks like all the years of punishment have finally caught up to him. Um, And then in this show, not only do they get into all that stuff, but they get into the fact, you know, his home life and how horrible it was for his wife and his children. 
Um, because basically what he was, a lot of people say that it was roid rage. I don't buy that one bit. He was on a ton of roids. But the reason why he was such a shitty human being is because he was constantly in pain and suffering. And it made him miserable. Depressed. Yeah. And he was depressed. And he also had maybe the worst case of little man syndrome on the face of the earth. So when you mix all those things together with a guy who's legitimately physically dangerous, it's a powder keg, man. Look, and look what happened with Benoit. Frankly, like the parallels are ridiculous. Yeah, it's honestly. And now this is a guy that died wheelchair bound. OK, and he had had a stroke before he passed away, too. It's amazing that it didn't end worse for him. Mm hmm. Do you know yeah. how disturbing it is to say that? Like, that's not a good way to go anyway. And it should have probably been way worse for him. Yeah, because even his, I believe it was his oldest daughter mentioned that she was going back and forth with trying to see him because they were all estranged. Uh, his wife, Michelle, moved the family and Billington went back to the UK and she decided to go and the other siblings didn't want to go, but she mentioned yep. that it was a great decision because he was by that time humbled and apologetic and, you know, did what they could at that time to kind of at least put some semblance of, of repair on their estranged relationship. So like, like you were saying, that goes with that where it could have been a lot worse. Like he at least got to see one of his kids towards the end in some semblance of a positive manner. And, uh, you know, with this episode, I always shout out John Pollock, uh, use his review as a reference uh, from Post Wrestling. I did too, and it's, it's really good, man. Yeah, because he, he it, really it kind of, it, it sums up the episode, this portion here, saying that the episode struck a perfect counterbalance of the competing legacies he left behind, focusing the first half on his awe-inspiring ring style that was so far ahead of the game and influenced countless future wrestlers. The other half of the documentary placed the light on the toll that the physical style took in the mayhem and chaos he brought home with them. And of course uh, we're kind of alluding to uh, the big event in this, which we've heard the story before and in his book, uh, of course, the frightening retelling of the incident that drove his wife, Michelle away as she was still pregnant with him putting a shotgun to her chin. And that was Dude, tough to watch. Of course. I got to tell you, man, I have a lot of respect for Michelle Billington, his ex-wife. Yeah. Because she went through all of this and they didn't get into her life. Like she might have had a really rough go of it being a single mom of three children and the whole nine. Okay. And she's on there like, don't bad mouth him. She's like, it's CTE. It's the depression. It's the, the, the alcohol and drug abuse. She's like, and, and the obsession with the business him. that happens to these guys. Yes. His whole life yes. is based around pro wrestling before his family. And again, sounds a lot like Chris Benoit, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, like, and dude, this is a guy that I don't know if you know this or not, but the guy who originally invented the flying headbutt was Harley race. And he, uh, you know, he was doing that move and dynamite kids saw him doing it. So dynamite kids started doing the move and Harley race said, stop doing that fucking thing. I never should have did it. Uh, it's you're going to you're going to end up in a wheelchair from it. And I found out that what happened was uh, it would go on to, you know, they, Dynamite would go on to meet Chris Benoit at one point. And he would say he would tell Benoit, whatever you do, don't do the fucking flying head. But he was like, 
I started doing it and Harley started it and he saw me doing it. And he's like, don't fucking do it. And I didn't listen to him and I should have. It put me in a wheelchair. Benoit went and did it too. Yeah. And that's, that's what, uh, this past AEW, um, dynamite, there was a match with Christian and Christian did it. And they even spoke about it. Jim Ross himself said, if they ban that move from the business, I ain't got a problem with it. Just that, just that recently. And I agree. I I totally, there's no one in the business that does that move the right way. Um, the safe way. And there, there's so many other moves that you can do that are frankly more believable and look better. There's really no point in having the move in wrestling anymore. It's dumb. It's always kind of been dumb. It probably should have never went past Harley. But I understand that smaller guys adapted it and shit and probably did it the way higher velocities because I've seen some of them uh, from Dynamite specifically that are just fucking Oh, horrible, ben, Benoit was insane with that, dude. Like that's I feel directly connected with the main catalyst of his CTE. And, you know, look at uh, Daniel Bryan adapted it and had concussion issues. So... And he even said the same thing. He was like, that's another move that people always warn me about doing and I shouldn't have done it, but I do. And it is what it is. You know, like it's stupid, man. It's really not worth it, especially when guys like this have gone on to be the guinea pig for you. Uh, You know, they're trying to save you and your family some anguish. And, you know, but that's the nature of the beast. It's always shut the fuck up, old man. What do you know? And you know how that goes. So, um. But, you know, overall, I really, really like this episode. Um, One thing I didn't know, uh, which is really bizarre, uh, just thinking about it. I had no idea that Julie Hart was uh, his ex-wife's sister. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah, because that was a cool bullet point note I had where she was talking about the last time that she saw. Disturbing. Yeah, and it's like disturbing. he was he was watching his old tiger mask matches with her and you know it just painted a very sad picture. And he's like, Oh, what a fucking show that was and stuff. Yeah. And she's just like that's yes. what happens, man. You have the world at your the balls. It's one of those classic stories, you know, somebody that in his prime had the world by the balls and then it's just he's left with nothing at the end. It's and you know, his, his wife even says this too. She's like, At one point he said to me, you know, like I hope my kids could be proud of my body of work. And she's yeah, like, that's all he had. Your kids need a father, not a wrestler. But she realized she was like, and I realized eventually, but like, that's what he wanted to provide for them. Like their yeah. father had a proud legacy, you know, and dude, anybody in the business will tell you that dynamite was absolutely positively no joke um, in the ring and even out of it. Of course, they get into the whole Jacques Rougeau thing that's been told a million times over. Um, but I will say this, though, I don't know if you know this or not. Um, from my understanding, the roll of quarters thing is bullshit. They kind of hit on it real quick, and that's uh, Scotty McGee is the one that says it. Uh, it was brass knuckles. That's the way I was always understood, and I've heard other people tell it that way. Like, I mean, brass shit, either, knuckles either way. Or a knuckle duster. Yeah. Well, either way. Dude, you're you're not gonna knock somebody's fucking teeth out with a roll of quarters. You you'll knock somebody's fucking brain out of their head with knuckles or a duster. So I do believe that because, I mean, dude, even Jacques, and I'm kind of surprised because Jacques Rougeau is known for having a bit of an ego, but he even says himself in here, like, I'm not really a tough guy. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He didn't. Yeah, he he was just guy. he was put put in a spot where he felt like, 
you know, it's that eagle ego manhood thing that he felt like uh, getting decimated in front of everybody by dynamite in the locker room like that. And I, I guess they and even do, said perfect set him up. Did you hear that little tidbit? Yeah. And you know what, too? I don't know what's going on with that, but I've also heard that story told many different ways. And a lot of them don't have perfect in it. And a lot of them have Davy Boy as the antagonist, which yeah. is definitely true because I've heard that, uh, you know, elsewhere, too. Like, that's why a lot of people didn't like Davy Boy because they were like, yeah. He would fucking stir everything up and then Dynamite would be the one to fucking finish it. And people didn't want fucking problems with Dynamite. And Davey was being an asshole to basically entertain himself. Um, and dude, there are, believe me when I tell you, there are so many more stories that were left out of this episode. Just in general, um, I've heard a million horror stories just about Matilda the dog. And frankly, they're gross. They're, and I don't really want to talk about them on the show. It's just some really fucking disgusting, less than human shit that these dudes were doing for their own shits and giggles that I'm not on board with at all. And these are just other types of people. And I don't mean that they're different than me and you. I mean that they're basically borderline psychopaths. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you hit the nail on the head uh, at the outset with the word cruel. Well, dude, let me That's let me give you is. a story that they didn't tell on here that doesn't have anything to do with the dog. So you're well aware of a ring crew and the people that put together the ring. Well, in the 80s, you know, uh, things were a little bit different than they are now. Like now WWE has employees to do this. Back then they would hire outside contractors. So there was a guy that drove the ring truck and it was him and two other guys. And one of the guys on his ring crew was a, a over 300 pound heavy set guy that was uh, he had some mental issues, we'll say. He was mentally challenged. But he was big and he could carry stuff. So he would, you know, come and do it. And the dude was a big wrestling fan. So it was a big deal for this dude to come along with the ring crew and help them do shit. So the guy's like, you know, one night we're taking on the ring. And he's like, you know, the show's over and everything. He's, and he's like, and I see Dynamite and Davey sitting in the, like, second row. And I was like, that's fucking weird. Why are they standing here? They should be gone by now. So he's like, then they eventually get up and walk away. And this dude that, that I'm talking about was the head of the ring crew. And he's like, so then I'm, I'm taking a few things. And I noticed Tony, and this is the guy that, you know, the mentally challenged guy, um, was carrying stuff. But he was, like, doing it in slow motion. And they were like, hey, Tony, you all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. What's going on? Like, nothing. Just want to know if you're okay. So he's like, I thought that was strange. He's like, then Chief J Strongbow comes up to me. And he's like, hey. And he goes, see that drink right there? And he's like, yeah. He's like, who is that? Whose drink is that? And he's like, it's Tony's. And he's like, has he touched it? And he's like, well, yeah, he's been drinking on it for the last 15 minutes. Why? And he's like, God damn it. He's like, the bulldogs were out here. I think somebody halcyoned him. So they dropped uh, fucking halcyon in this dude's drink. And dude, he was passed out in a box truck for two days. And the dude telling the stories like, He's like, man, this fucking dude's parents trusted me to take him here. What if he would have died or something? Yeah, that's horrible. These are fucking straight up sadists, man. Shitty people. And you know me. I'm a huge fan of Dynamite Kid in the Ring. I don't yeah. like him as a human being one bit. He was an awful, disgusting person. And, you know, maybe he had to meet his maker whenever he passed. I don't know. But well, dude, you know what? did enough shitty things that probably have to answer for them eventually. Uh, Mick Foley was in this. And as we always say, he's always great. And uh, my last thing on it, hey, I'll throw at you his quote from here because it sums up 
the Dynamite Kid really well. So this is from Mick Foley. Quote, Tommy had a canvas and he was brilliant. He's not the first, nor will he be the last to suffer for the sake of his art. And there's a sense that a lot of people who are great at something aren't necessarily great at all aspects of their life. And they find solace in doing what they do, but they pay for that brief time. You become a bigger star than you ever imagined. And then you pay for it every day for the rest of your life. Mick Foley. And he also brought this up too, because I've heard this elsewhere before. He said, I think it was Bruce Springsteen, which it was, who said this, trust the art not the artist. Yep. And that's really what you just summed up with his overboard ribbing. Yeah. It's just disgusting shit. It was completely unnecessary, man. So um, without a doubt, a great episode though, of dark side of the ring. I thought that they really got the most out of all parties. And I felt like they might not have told the entire story, but I didn't feel like they were holding back. I thought of any reason why they might not have told the whole story this time. It was just because of the sheer time that they didn't have to do it in. Um, but overall, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes of the season, I thought. Yeah, it was really good. It was up there. Uh, you and I both, I think, you know, definitely you were the bigger of the two of us, Dino, my kid fan, but I was right behind you uh, again with his in-ring work and Classically, back in the day, you uh, let me borrow his book to read after you read it and and said it was really good. And I really enjoyed that. So uh, with all, you know, following an entire legacy, an entire guy's life in a couple hour package with commercials, they did a really good job overall. Yeah. And it's just the type of thing where, you know, very much like you do with Benoit, you know, the Dynamite Kid is absolutely positively one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time but he was a really bad human being. It just, it, you can't say one without the other. Yeah. That's just how it works. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. That is uh, the end of season three of dark side of the ring, or well, I like you say, said, yeah, the season three a, so to speak right. um, with B coming in September. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show Uh, The Jay is going to give us what's going on in the world of goofs, and we're going to head off into vacation land. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back. So the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? As we say, hey, in episode 75 of the What's Real Podcast will be no different. There is an abundance of goofs on planet Earth, and we have five slots in this week's segment, in this episode segment. So let's get right to it. Hey, Eot. Off the bat, are, do you happen to be familiar with internet sensation Hasbula Megamenodov? Uh, no, not at all, I don't believe. Okay, so he's this 18-year-old. Um, I guess he has some sort of a physical deficiency where he looks like a little kid. 
But he's like really funny. You know what? This is really weird that you're bringing this up because a friend of mine actually asked me if I heard about this the other day. (laughs) And I was like, no, what? And then like he kind of explained it and then something else came up and we never got back to it. So this is really weird. Yeah. And it's it's really it's really funny because, of course, uh, in the UFC, Conor McGregor has a huge uh, super fight coming up next. It's the end of the trilogy with Poirier next month. So it's getting some, uh, you know, Already, some attention man. here. Wow. Yeah, it came fast. Um, pun, puns intended there. Hate you. Unlike <laughs> <laughs> the J, but I'm boom. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm the eight, the 18-year-old wants to fight UFC superstar Conor McGregor before his much-hyped fight against Abdu Rose comes to fruition. So I guess this uh, Hasbula is fighting another dude. I guess he's like an 18-year-old fighter. Um, okay. So those listening can fill us in because there's just so many characters right now and again that's why we're doing goose for goose because tons of goofs but uh they published a hilarious skit on his youtube channel uh this asbak temiov these are all russian dudes i guess uh featuring hasbula and the famed duo discussed the next fight before an angry hasbula almost wreaked havoc havoc in the skit hasbula was asked who he would like to challenge between logan paul mcgregor and henry cahuto the 18 year old responded I want to punish this one and pointed to Conor McGregor. He talks too much when questioned if he would be willing to fight McGregor, despite the significant size difference has Beulah said, yes, I want to punish him. Yes. So, I will take money to get beaten. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you got to look at it cause uh, he looks like he's a baby and he's 18 and he just talks all these, this shit and talk about ribbing. He does like all these online skits. So that's why he's a, an internet sensation. So dude, you gotta there, there was, you gotta get into the world of Hasbula Megamedov. Hey, you there was there's another dude. Like, did you ever watch uh, Jesus and Marrow before? Yes, it's on Showtime, and yeah. like they they had this dude. There was like a dude from Puerto Rico, like that. Like they showed a video of his, and they were like, "Oh, this dude's a kid," and like you know, look at this kid, and like, and then the next week he sent them a video, like, "Bitch, I'm a grown man." And like, so they eventually had him on the show and all this shit because they didn't know. They're like, dude, we thought you were a kid. So I'm like, how many internet sensations are there that are grown men that look like children? This is, fu- I didn't think this was as normal as it, or I shouldn't there, say There's no, an I, abundance of them now. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently. They're coming out of the woodwork. All, all stemming from the legendary Beetlejuice of Howard Stern fame. <laughs> <laughs> Who, me? Yeah. Hey, oh, next up on Goose or Goose, uh, you really don't want ultimate slip and slide from NBC because of explosive diarrhea. <laughs> cha, the cha, NBC, cha. the NBC reality competition show has shut down production after a reported outbreak of waterborne giardia. Uh, you know, they had a big slip and slide, and it's just filled with the brown stuff. Uh, I guess it was, you know, <laughs> the brown <laughs> <intestinal>. stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, given the series hosted by comics, Ron Funches, our boy, uh, shout out to Ron Funches and Bobby Monahan is all about contestants navigating a 65 foot tall slippery yellow slide. It uh, isn't going to flow, though, when it's filled with diarrhea. Cha cha cha. <laughs> so we move on. Hey, yo, this is a crazy one. <laughs> Next up on Goose or Goose. Where a lobster diver was swallowed whole by a hunkback whale and lived to tell the story. Have you heard this one? Hey, yeah. Yes, but not this particular one. <laughs> this is where I'm going to die. Lobster diver describes being swallowed by humpback whale. 
But yeah, a veteran lobster diver um, home from the hospital after he was swallowed by a humpback whale earlier last Friday in Provincetown, Massachusetts. He said his vessel was positioned off of Cove Beach. He, the 56-year-old, literally plucks lobsters off the bottom of the ocean floor when all of a sudden, 30 feet down, he was swallowed by a humpback whale. Well, that's what you get. <laughs> you know, I thought stay the fuck out of the water, man. Like it's like fucking jaws. Like it's not going to bother you in Kansas. Well, like scientists say, I mean the, the deep oceans like space on earth, you know? It's like outer space, fucking aliens down there. Yeah. Uh he Ugh. said that uh he thought there's no way I'm going to get out of this with sheer brute. It's either he's going to let me go or this is where I'm going to die. And I really thought this is where we're going to die. All I could think about was my sons, my wife, and my mom. I thought it was over. He says he estimates he was trapped inside the mammal for 30 to 40 seconds. He had scuba gear on to breathe uh, while he was in the whale. And eventually uh, the whale came up and threw threw him out. Yeah. Thank, How about that hit you? Thank God, because I don't think you'd want to go through the other end. Yeah, that's a that's a story to tell though. Ah. Being like, yeah, have you ever have you ever been swallowed by a humpback whale? I have. Yeah, that's true. It's like, oh, but you you wouldn't survive, pussy. <laughs> Next up on Goose or Goose seventy five, hey you up. The creators of the comic Harley Quinn say that DC won't let Batman go down on Catwomen. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> As they say here, it's hard to sell a toy if Batman is going also going down on someone. I was trying to see this. This is what I'm a little disappointed in myself. I'm clearly getting a little delirious for the day because whenever you said DC, <laughs> I was trying to think of like something that could, like damn cocksuckers or like I just didn't. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't, I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, you're just drained on E. But yeah, um, I guess they had a scene they were saying in um, Harley Quinn where Batman and Catwoman are having sex and the, you know, the corporate head said, you absolutely cannot do that. Uh, the guy said, we had a moment where Batman, the, the, you know, the fucking my favorite, upper brass. My favorite kind of blowjob, corporate head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the guy said, we had a moment where Batman was going down on Catwoman and DC was like, you can't do that. You absolutely can't do that. They're like, heroes, heroes don't do that. So we said, are you saying heroes are just selfish lovers? They were like, no, it's that we, we sell consumer toys for heroes. It's hard to sell a toy if Batman is also going down on someone. Like, pardon me. Do you guys have the new DC Batman figure from Hasbro with pussy in action? <laughs> Like, why is everything ha like, dude, when we were kids, like you could buy Freddy Krueger toys. He was a fucking child molester. No one was like, oh, he's a child molester. You can't make toys. They're like, toys make any kind of fucking toy they'll make. This is where it's we're different at. Times, it's a, yeah. Well, ain't that the fucking yeah. truth? This is truly where we're at. So to sum up Goofs or Goofs this week, one more segment. Uh, this is from Uberfax. Hey, yo. So, uh. You know, we could fact check this scientifically as well, because I didn't yet. Your boy, the J. Okay. But it states that rabies can cause men to ejaculate up to 30 times a day uncontrollably. Who the fuck? So, like, one of, so what, who, who is the guy with rabies that's like, uh, they're like, well, we don't care about the rabies everywhere. yet. Let's see how many he gets up to. <laughs> yeah. Like, and 30. Yeah, like you're gonna have people like these idiots chasing wild dogs and fucking raccoons. <laughs> it's like, like dude, <laughs> it's like fucking. Uh, you ever see Shivers from Cronenberg? 
It's like the, <laughs> that fucking larva gets inside people and all they do is fuck each other to death. <laughs> like this dude said, how do you get rabies? Asking for everyone. Um, <laughs> this other one was funny. <laughs> picture, picture this. You're sitting on a hammock, napping on vacation. A bat lands on you and bites you. It weighs so little, you simply have no idea it even happened. Years later, you're hallucinating as your brain cells are dying and nervous system is turning into mist. <laughs> it's like, what the uh, fuck? You can't write it. Like, what? why would I think that would it? Like, dude, I'm pretty sure I'm never going to be in a situation in my life where I'm just chilling and there's a bat on me and I have no idea. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. a fucking bat. I'm going to have some clue. You're going to see your neighbor with like a huge net. Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm going to go catch a bat for certain reasons. Certain reasons. It's like, like, oh, I listen to the What's Real podcast. I know what you're up to. Yeah, because and then people on this thread get all serious. There is no cure for rabies. Once you get rabies, you die within three to four weeks. Oh, yeah. Everybody everybody pops on online like Bear grills. like they know every like, no, actually, it depends on certain type of venoms. Yeah, it's like, oh, here we go. Everybody's a veterinarian or a fucking scientist. And it's like, meanwhile, I'm not going to let a rabid raccoon bite me from reading Twitter just so I could not uncontrollable well, it's like you're reading a medical conversation between a plumber and some dude that like unloads trucks for dollar general like well okay yeah you guys are clearly the source for medical advice in the world you dumbasses <laughs> it's like no thanks uh, i'd rather listen to the animal with rabies before i listen to what you say <laughs> christ <laughs> the one guy said, here comes the, well, I guess I got rabies when I was 16 jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I say to my brother from another mother, hate you between little baby looking 18 year olds, challenging McGregor to diarrhea, slip and slides at NBC <laughs> to a lobster diver getting swallowed whole by a humpback. whale, to Batman, not being able to go down on anybody and to rabies, making you ejaculate uncontrollably. Goofs are goofs. Mike, drop that one. Hate you. So that is it for us this week here on episode 75. Hope you guys enjoy it. Don't forget the next couple weeks, we will be on a little bit of a different deal. Uh, Still will be shows for you guys. Just not going to be the normal shows. Like I said, we have the two summer specials coming up and we will be back uh, in three weeks time with episode 76. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Joe Bob last driving. We're going to break down the season and talk about the final week there. Uh, We'll most likely be giving our, uh, you know, rundown of uh, the episodes of Dark Side of the Ring as well. I'm sure we'll have all kinds of other fun stuff uh, planned and ready to go for you guys as well. So that's about it for us this week. But before we do that, hey, the J, take it away. Like an ejaculating idiot that got bit by a rabid raccoon going down a slip and slide filled with diarrhea. Hey, yeah, revving it up here. 
Love the show. We all know that. I'm going to keep it short and sweet this week because, hey, Ed and I are on complete E, getting everything ready for you for the vacation. We definitely earned that said vacation. Uh, but always the shout out to our producer, the wizard behind the boards himself and the blood flow and flesh. Cam, thanks for what you do. The 16K sound is beautiful week in and week out. We appreciate that. To my brother, hey, Ill, always a blast, man. I'll miss you over vacation, but we'll definitely be in touch. I'll be hitting you up. We're going to be rearing and ready to go when we get back for the big 7-6. Hope everybody enjoys the summer vacation specials. And as we say, you'll hear the J in three weeks. And next week. Ah. And next week. Yeah, I've already recorded it, so I'm confused. So you'll hear the J next week. I can still use my catchphrase. That's right. So that is it for us on episode 75. The J, my brother, there's nobody else I'd rather do it with. So thanks for sitting down with me like we do here each and every week, man. Enjoy that vacation. Very much well earned. And I'll hold it down, down in parts unknown. Uh, for my little break as well uh, of course cam thank you for all the hard work you put in the show brother you're the best and as we know nobody beats the whiz so that's it for us this week guys don't forget to join us next week and the week after for our specials and then the week after that for episode 76 so that's it guys stay safe stay healthy get vaccinated and we'll see you next week right here on the what's real podcast what's real, what's real?